Lord, um, as we open up your word, teach us. Come Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. So we've been uh, marching through Daniel, and, and over and over again, what we've heard is there's unseen stuff that's going on. You might not see it, Daniel. You might not get it, Daniel. But Daniel, God is in complete control. Total control. Um, I thought of Daniel, well, actually, Mondays is when I stay at home and I begin to kind of figure out what we're, the passage is saying and I open up. And I'm studying Daniel and I get a phone call from my mom and saying, have you turned on the TV set? And she's telling me that Notre Dame's burning. Um, been there a number of times, been there a couple of times. Um, so yeah, I turned on the TV set immediately and started watching. I don't know about everybody else. And kind of watched on and off through the day um, as it burned and heard about how everything was a complete and total lost and friend that I travel with calls me up halfway through the day did you hear and you know we're going back and forth and and I don't know how you guys are you know I'm like kind of like some other people who kind of say well where are the water dropping helicopters you know and by halfway through the afternoon it hit me that the water dropping helicopters would have taken out the rose windows you know it would have take I mean that that wasn't the answer and so I was absolutely awestruck when I saw those first scenes of when the firemen came through the doors and opened up the door into the cathedral. So that first one, you know. And what do they see? The cross. Notre Dame's in ruins, but the cross is there. Let's go to the next one. Yeah. That center section of the cathedral is completely taken off. But the altar and the cross and Mary holding Jesus. It's right there. And I, and I love this one, the reflection of the cross in, in the water. Okay. Let's go to the next one. Basically, the main structure of Notre Dame is still in place. But what was really fascinating, I mean, I saw that, I mean, not really fascinating, the cross. And that's at the front of, I mean, if you've been in cathedrals, you know, they're like big crosses, right? Okay, and so, you know, at the top of the cross, you know, that's where the altar is, and that's where this cross is, and that's where, you know... Mary holding Jesus is. And then you have this center section where the beams would cross and that's where everything's kind of fallen through the center roof and, and the major part where everybody sits. But then at the back where people first come in, and if you've been in a Catholic church, what is the first thing that, I mean, a lot of times when you walk into some of those cathedrals, the first thing you see are what? Those Voda candles. Okay? That symbolize the prayers of the people going up to God. And it's amazing. Let's go to the next slide. The Voda candles were still lit the next morning. 
All that water going on the cathedral and the votive candles are still lit. Okay. And, and for me, this is a, in a sense, this is a great picture of what we keep hearing about in Daniel. There's all this destruction happening. There's all this stuff going on. There's all this horrible mess, this uncontrollable fire. You know, everybody wants to know, so how did it start? And who's to blame? And, you know, and how come they didn't do this? And where were the, you know, sprinkler systems? And this and the other, you know, there's this uncontrollable fire. And yet the cross and the votive candles. It's like God still said, I'm still reigning. And I found it fascinating that in this one country that has declared itself secular, everybody sees Notre Dame as that place where they get this national identity from. Hmm, okay. And everybody's out praying and singing hymns. And of all weeks, Easter week, okay. I mean, there's this guy on at 6 o'clock on, on CNN that I've, I mean, fell into by accident because I, I was just kind of trying to tape things So, because I had to go out to meetings and I wanted to come home and see what was going on. So I'm taping, you know, a couple different news stations and I come home and I turn on the CNN guy because it was the last one that kind of got taped. And it was like, this: he's on every night at 6 o'clock. He's Catholic. He spent most of Monday night and half of last night interviewing Catholic priests and monsignors talking about the resurrection that comes out of ashes. You know? He kept talking about Easter. Huh. CNN. <laughs> They're talking about Jesus and Easter and resurrection and new life. And I'm being reminded God did not cause that fire, but God is in control of history. And God is working. And that's what this Daniel book keeps telling us over and over and over again. Um, let's go to that next slide, I think. Um, six. So, there are about um, Six major themes that go through chapter 7 to, to 12. Uh, the first one is the horror of evil, particularly as it's consecrated in the state. Um, and, and I'm going to add to that at a certain level today. Um, what did we read around in chapter 10? We read about the, the prince of Persia and, and the prince of Greece. And in a sense, what we're being told is that behind all of these world powers in a sense, stands off in the demonic, flaming those flames of that power, you know, in ways that are in conflict with God. Behind the horror of human evil, the horror of human evil particularly is concentrated in world powers, what is it? Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. The announcement of a specific time of deliverance. We're told over and over and over again 
this will come to an end. Every chapter, in a sense, talks about coming to a final end in fulfillment. Repentance leads to deliverance. The revelation that a cosmic war stands behind human conflict. We're going to talk about that today. Judgment is certain for those who resist God and opposes his people. And the equally certain truth that God's people downtrodden in the present will experience new life in the fullest sense in the future. Over and over again. Daniel goes through a new regime change and a new situation and he cries out to God and he goes, God, it doesn't seem to be getting any better. And here we are at the beginning of chapter 10, three years in to Cyrus's edict, sending all the Israelites back to Jerusalem to rebuild Jerusalem and Daniel's still stuck at the court And he's getting reports back from Jerusalem about the conflict and the hardship and trying to rebuild the temple and the city walls. And when we find all that in Ezra and and in Nehemiah, and and, and we just begin, and Daniel's just going, God, what's going on here? And God gives Daniel another vision, this last vision. Okay? And it starts... In the third year, Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, who is called Belteshazzar, remembering exactly where he's at, that he's not allowed to return, that he's still stuck at the court. It's a message was true, and it concerned a great war, a great conflict, and the understanding came to him in a vision. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine. Okay, so this is fascinating. No meat. Do you remember back in chapter one? He wasn't eating meat then. It's almost like after a time, you know, that was for a time that he did that. Now now he go back and he started eating meat, but now he's kind of taking that fast. He's, he's going through this time of denial in order to concentrate on God. And it's fascinating the timing because the timing that he's doing this is at the time of the Passover and the time of unleavened bread. Basically, it would be like the time of Easter we celebrate now. Passover celebrating the exodus from Egypt, the freedom of God's people from slavery, and unleavened bread, the bitterness of slavery, and the wandering in the wilderness. And I had no lotion. I, I it didn't have... I, I, I basically denied myself in order to seek God in order to find out what God was doing. And on the 24th day of the first month, I was standing on the bank of the great river of Tyrus, Tigris, and I looked up, and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Upsai around the waist, and his body was like topaz, and his face shining, and his eyes flaming torches, and his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. I mean, you had to really pay attention to hear what he said. Now, this is a fascinating description here. Um, and everybody argues about who this man is. Because everything about this picture of this man is just about word for word what John gets in Revelation 1. It's almost as if we're seeing, you know, the pre-incarnational Christ 
revealing himself to Daniel, the second person of the Trinity, that same person who reveals himself to John, okay, or to Paul on the road to Damascus. And every time the reaction is the same, they hit the deck as if they're dead. They can't move. They are so blinded by the glory of God that all life goes from them. Um, now, there is an argument about whether or not this is Jesus or not Jesus. And the argument that says that it's not Jesus is because it eventually reads as if he basically was held up by the Prince of Persia. Okay? Um, it, it basically reads as if, you know, he's the one who's kind of um, in, not strong enough until Michael arrives. And that doesn't fit with the second person of the Trinity. Now, I don't know the answer to that question. It's kind of an argument that goes back and forth. But by the time we get to Daniel 12, and you've read Daniel 12, there are now three people. Okay? You know, I have a feeling that the whole time there are probably three people, and that you kind of have these voices going back and forth talking. I think I I really am, this is too close to John, that that I kind of want to agree with those who say this is Jesus appearing and talking to Daniel along with, the other two angels that are by his side, but I don't know. There is arguments for and against it. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision, and those who were with me did not see it. But I, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone, glazing at the great vision, and I had no strength left. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever wanted to see an angel? Okay. Have you ever read about the people who've seen angels? Mary saw an angel. First words out of the angel's mouth to Mary, don't be afraid. Everybody who's ever seen an angel, it's kind of like, it is so, you know, sometimes you've got to watch what you pray for. Okay. People who see angels aren't so much having mountaintop experiences <laughs> as they are in the depths. They don't have any strength left. All their breath is taken from them. They see who they really are. And there is an extent to which all of us need to approach God with that type of humility. I think all too often, with that type of humility, um, I'm going to say it, all too often, I think we approach God saying, you know, kind of like a flat tire, pump me up. You know, so that I can kind of stand on my own. And really, when we see Jesus, the air completely goes out. Okay. But this is what happens. At that point in time, God touched Daniel. He touches John, and he lifts him up, and he says, stand. But they're now standing, not in their own power, but because of God, because of God's love and God's attention and God's touch. See? And their response is one of being vessels that are open to God's filling to do God's work. And a hand touched 
and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said, Daniel, you are highly esteemed. Consider carefully the words I'm about to speak to you and stand up, for I have been sent to you. And when he said this, I stood up trimming. And then he continued, do not be afraid. Um, When Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb on Easter Sunday morning, there are two things that happen. Um, one is there's this, in Matthew, we, we hear about her and the other women going to the tomb and they um, see an angel. And actually they end up seeing Jesus um, too. But, and, and they basically hear, you know, they, they, this angel and then this resurrected, excuse me, Jesus. And it's like, the words are, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. What are you afraid of? You know, one of the things that Daniel wants to say over and over and over again, you don't have anything to be afraid of. God is in control of history. Completely, totally, 110%. He's in control of your life. And not only that, okay, he basically is giving you this one-to-one encounter. Okay? He gives Daniel a one-to-one encounter. I, I loved it when Anne was talking during the devotion time about how God answered her prayers so specifically. This great God of the universe, okay, who's in control of all of history, wants you to hear him say that you are greatly loved by him. You, personally. That he personally hears your prayers and knows what's going on in your life. He says, don't be afraid. But it's also um, kind of fascinating when, when Mary, in John's encounter of Mary in the um, garden, or yeah, the garden tomb, um, when she sees Jesus, she thinks it's the gardener. And she, you know, he kind of, you know, reveals himself and she just latches onto him. And Jesus says to him, her, Mary, don't hold on to me. I need to go to my father and I want you to go back and talk to the disciples. Okay? And, and as I was reading something the other day, it, it kind of hit me that, you know, a lot of times we want to hold on to Jesus. I want to hold on to this moment. I want to hold on to this secure place I'm in right now. Daniel's, you know, there. And and, and God's going, Daniel, don't be afraid. You're highly esteemed. But let me tell you about what's going on so that you can respond. So that you know how to live. See, there's still work to do. Now's not the time to hold on to Jesus. Now's not the time to hold on our preconceptions of what we think he should be doing for us. Now is the time to tell other people about Jesus, to do the work of Jesus, to go back and enter into the battle, the conflict that put Jesus on the cross in the first place, the conflict with Satan. Since the first day you set your mind to gain understanding and you humbled yourself before God, your words were heard, and I've come in response to them. But the prince of Persia, 
of the Persian kingdom resisted me for 22 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained by the prince of the king of Persia. Now I've come to explain to you what will happen in the future for the vision concerns times yet to come. While they were saying this to me, I bowed my face toward the ground and was speechless. Then one who looked like a man touched my lips, reads like Isaiah, and I opened my mouth and I began to speak. And I said to the one standing before me, I am overcome with anguish because of the vision, my Lord, and I feel weak. How can I, your servant, talk with you, my Lord? My strength is gone. I can hardly breathe. And again, the one who looked like a man touched me and gave me strength. Do not be afraid. You are highly esteemed. Peace. Be strong now. Be strong. When he spoke to me, I was strengthened. And I said, speak, Lord, since you've given me strength. So he said, do you know why I've come to you? Soon I'll return to fight against the prince of Persia. And then I'll go to fight against the prince of Greece when he comes. But I will first tell you what is written in the book of truth. No one supports me against them except Michael, your prince. Daniel, let me pull back the curtain for you. You've been praying. You want to know what's going on. You want to know why things haven't changed, why things aren't that much different, why Cyrus is now as bad as any of the Babylonian kings, why things aren't going better in Jerusalem. Well, let me tell you, Daniel, they're not going to go better in Jerusalem. They're going to get worse in Jerusalem. Daniel, let me tell you, history continues, just repeats itself, repeats itself, repeats itself. But Daniel, let me tell you why. Daniel, let me pull back the curtain and let me show you, because there is a conflict going on in heaven that is working itself out on earth. And you are called into that conflict. You are called to partner with us in that conflict. You're caught up in it. You're part of it. Okay, It's a spiritual conflict that exists in this world. It is going to come to an end. God is in complete control. But that time hasn't happened yet. And as that conflict plays itself out over and over and over and over again in history, where people are seeking their own well-being, their own power, their own luxuries, their own will and way, God is working And he's battling back. And one day he will return and the conflict will be over. But in the meantime, Daniel, in my strength, stand up, be strong, and go battle with the weapons that I give you. Paul writes to the church in Corinthians and and, and then in in Ephesus about the fact, uh, Ephesus 6, let me read it. 2 Corinthians 10. By humility and the gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I'm away. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards the people. Um, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. 
The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish strong arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. And then Ephesians 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so you can take a stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. It is straight out of Daniel. But this is how we are to live in the midst of this battle. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. So when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've already, after you've done everything to stand. Here goes. That is a past tense type of thing. Put it on. Already have it on. And what is that armor? Stand firm then with the belt of truth. The armor of God is knowing what the truth of God is. And the truth of God that we've experienced over and over and over and over and over again in Daniel is that God is in control. That God rules. That God wins. That God loves me. That Jesus died for me. Okay. That there's a battle going on. Stand firm then with the belt of truth tucked around your waist and the breastplate of righteousness in place. How's Daniel able to stand against power after power after power? Because he's a man of righteousness. He's a man of integrity. He's a man of stability. He's a man of humility. Okay. And with your feet fitted with readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Readiness to tell others about Jesus. Readiness to point others to Jesus. The battle that we are fighting is one of bringing people to Christ. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, taking hold of what you know is true and putting it into your life, to which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, knowing that you are a beloved of Jesus, a beloved child of God, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all types of prayers prayer over and over and over again um, let's go to that go, go next slide for a minute um, course of history is driven not by some involuntary forces by some evolutionary forces but by God's divine directive see the conflicts of earth as being part of a heavenly conflict whether wars or relationship issues or sin um, you know a lot of times we have this sense that if we would just put the right people in power or if we'd have the right um, organization in place um, or there'd be the right social groups in place to, to take care of things, that all the conflict would go away, that everything would be good, that we could, in a sense, we could create a heaven on earth, that we could take care of all of the evils of this world. And what Daniel's teaching us is that's not how it's done. It's not done through big programs okay what Jesus taught us when he came they expected him to come up a big program and set up a world power 
And instead, Jesus just went one-on-one with people, loving them, praying for them, seeking the will of the Father, eventually dying for them. And he calls us to be like him. See, what we're told in Daniel is there's hope. Jesus is coming back. But in between, there's going to be conflict. And the way we live in the midst of that conflict is to live like Jesus did. Not trying to set up a nice little safe place for ourselves here now, but to daily go into every day looking for ways to love others as Jesus did, to bring one person at a time to Jesus, to battle back against the ways of Satan one step at a time, coming off of our knees, recognizing that the conflicts that we face have evil behind them and battling them with love and peace and gentleness and patience and kindness and death to our own desires and selves. Let's go to the next slide. Next one. We're going to go next one. We're called to recognize the real enemy. We're called to take every captive, take thought every captive and make it obedient to Christ. The battle is in our hearts and our thoughts and in our motives, what we're living for. We're called to think and put aside pride and self-will and to realize that God is after the heart of the other people that we're interacting with. I think all too often when we see somebody who isn't a Christian, we see the sin in their lives and want to make that right rather than seeing that God loves that other person and dying for them the way that Jesus died for them. Let's go to the next slide. Um, the ways of the enemy. He darkens, our mi- darkens the minds of unbelievers. He deceives the world. He plants his weeds in the midst even of Christian churches. He takes people captive to do his will. He plucks up the seed of the word. He thwarts missionary efforts. He throws people into prison. Go ahead, next one. We need to recognize the temptation often looks good. looks like bait, but there's a hook to it. We often go for the momentary good, not realizing the long-term consequences. Oftentimes, we have the temptation to rationalize sin as a virtue. I'm not greedy. I'm just thrifty. I don't gossip. I'm not nosy. I mean, you know, or gossip, I'm just concerned and praying. He shows us the sins of Christian leaders. That's the way other people are. What hope is there for me? Overstresses the mercy of God. It's okay, God will forgive you. He makes us bitter over suffering to the point that we're saying, you know, I, I really deserve this, whatever it is that's not of God. Shows us how bad people seem to be how bad people seem to be having great lives and kind of go, what's it worth to live in denial? Compare one part of your life to another. I'm basically good in these areas. You know, I'll I'll worry about these later. Temptations of Satan. How does Satan tempt you? 
we're in a conflict. We need to recognize the conflict that we're in, and we need to fight against the wiles of the adversary. Let's go to the next one. The other thing he does is he gets us to look at our sin more than our Savior. He gets us to obsess over the past sins that have done damage that can't be undone. The troubles that we are going through, we're told our punishment. And if I'm a real Christian, I wouldn't struggle with these thoughts and dreams. Satan is at work. Okay. He's at work in the large things of this world, and he's at work in the little things of this world. What Daniel sees here in chapter 10 that so completely undoes him is not just the picture of the risen Jesus but he sees the conflict, the battle that is going on as we go through chapters 11 and 12. And it undoes him because he realizes that he is helpless against it. But in God's strength, in recognizing that what we're in is in spiritual warfare, we can do battle. Now one of the things real fast in this passage is something that people have gotten into by looking at the the prince of Persia and and the prince of Greece, and we talk in terms of what some people today call territorial spirits, that governments or areas have actual demons that are over them and behind them. And to one extent, that's what this passage is teaching. But here's the dynamic. We can't so get involved in trying to figure out, well, I wonder what the demon is behind this, that we lose sight of Jesus. We can't so much get in to talking to demons that we talk to them rather than talk to the one who has the true power to undo them and to help us stand in the midst of them. Okay? It is more than appropriate to say, God, what is controlling? What is the sin here that needs to be prayed against and confessed? That's what Daniel does in chapter 9. That's what we're called to do. What is the sin in the areas of evil that I am experiencing, that, that we are experiencing both individually and in our community and in the world today that need to be prayed against and confessed? And then I am called to not know when Jesus is coming back to not wait for his coming back like I'm waiting for an airplane. But to go out and live as the hands and feet of Jesus, not for this life, but living as kingdom people who are already in the kingdom, one life at a time, seeking to love on people and show people Jesus' life and reality, and truth, and presence. It is heavy stuff to realize we're in a battle. It is heavy stuff to realize it's not about this world. It is about God's kingdom and his coming. The assurance is, the hope is, that he is coming back. And that there is a life in eternity. But in the meantime, there is work to do. And we're called into a battle that involves prayer, that starts with prayer, that involves putting on the armor, that involves recognizing and doing battle with the conflicts that we face in the name of Jesus. Touching one life at a time.
recognizing that God is in complete control and that he wins. Let me pray. Oh, one other thing. I hand you a sheet of paper. Um, kind of review that for next week because um, that really gets into chapter 11 and chapter 12. Um, just take it home, look at it for next week, and we'll get back to this. So let me pray. Lord, it is so easy to, to believe the lies of your adversary. We don't even recognize them a lot of times. The lies that say that it's all about us, the lies that say it's all about our comfort, the lies that say it's unfair, the lies that want us to focus on the here and now rather than on you and on your kingdom. Lord, you've pulled back the curtain. You've told Daniel it's not going to be over in his lifetime. But it's going to happen over and over and over again until you come back. Lord, thank you that we live on this side of the cross. But Lord, may we be Daniels to your praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a good morning.